Well, would you pray with me this morning? Well, Father, our, our hearts are warms as we remember and as we consider your delight in your own son. Our minds run to the gospels and we, we remember Jesus' baptism and we remember his, his transfiguration. We remember the precious words that you speak over your son. This is my beloved son with him. I'm well pleased. And we see in these scenes your delight, your love of your son. What a glorious love it is you have for your son. It is, it is boundless. It cannot be measured. It is eternal. It is before time and it will extend after time. It is lovely and pure and holy. It is good. And as we consider the love that you have for your son, our hearts are warmed and encouraged for for we love your son. It is our joy to say that there is no one like our Lord Jesus. What a precious Savior he is. We remember all that he has done for us and for our salvation. We remember his humiliation as as he takes flesh unto himself. We remember his life and all of his deeds. We remember his his suffering. We remember his cross. We remember his burial and then his resurrection to life indestructible. We love Jesus. We love all that he means for us. He is our prophet and he is our priest. He is our king and there is no one like him. And your love for your son encourages us to love him as well. And he is worthy of our love, worthy of our affections. And here as we consider your love, we do not just praise you and worship you, we also confess our sins. For as we gaze upon your pure love for your son, we see our many imperfections. We see the the weakness of our love for Jesus and often the the shallow nature of our love and the the fickleness of it. What what the psalmist says in Psalm 119 is, is so true of us. My soul clings to the dust. We often forget the Lord Jesus. We often do not prize him as supremely valuable. Our minds and our imaginations are not often captivated with him and we pray this morning, would you forgive us our sins? For Jesus ought to have the first place in our hearts. And we pray now, as the psalmist did, my, my soul clings to the dust, give me life according to your word. We, we pray as your people that you would turn our hearts to your son, that we would love him that we would cherish him, that the the affections of our hearts would be set upon him. Father, we we need this. And we recognize that you are the only one who can do this. And so we plead with you this morning that you would give us, your people, this, this precious gift, a love, a growing love for your son. We're reminded of what Paul says in in Colossians chapter 3 and the the first verses of that chapter that we ought to set our minds on Christ and where Christ is seated in the things that are above. 
And Father, we want to be a people, we want to be a church who, who look up at Christ and we set our affections upon him. Father, would you grant the obedience to those commands? Would you give us obedience that we might set our hearts and our minds on Jesus? We might live for him. Father, we are confident that you can do this. You command it. And so we believe that you will give us obedience. And even this morning, we, we trust that you will meet us in your word and you will do supernatural miracles this morning, turning our hearts toward your son and increasing our love for him. We pray that you would do this. We trust that you will. We pray this in, in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we're going to carry on in the book of Joshua. So if you would, would you, would you take hold of a Bible and open up to your Old Testament and turn to the book of Joshua. Our sermon text this morning is going to be Joshua chapter 2, and we're going to read all 24 verses of the second chapter. So last week we were in Joshua chapter 1, and, and we received Joshua's commission to lead Israel. What is his task? He must be strong and courageous, and he's strong and courageous by keeping the word of God. That's his work. So we have Joshua chapter 1, and now we get to move deeper into this story and look at Joshua chapter 2. And so would you hear God's word this morning? Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the women had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and and hid them with the stalks of flax that she, she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. 
and she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made with that you've made us swear, behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear." And she said, according to your words, so be it. And then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. When the two men returned, they came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Father, we ask now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word and that you would give us hearts that can understand and apply what your word says to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Deja vu is a, a sense of familiarity. And when you experience something like deja vu and you're getting this sense of familiarity, you say things like this, I, I think I've experienced this before. I think I've seen this before. I think I've heard this before. I think I've, I've been here before. And, and when this sort of thing happens to you, it, it's eerie. You can't explain it. And you're left often, when, when this happens to you, you're scratching your head trying to figure out what exactly is going on here. Now, here's the thing. If you read your Bible closely and carefully, which I hope you do, you will experience this sort of thing all of the time when you're, when you're reading your Bible. You're going to be moving through your Bible, and you're going to encounter something, and you're going to say, I think I've heard this before. I think I've seen this before. I, I think I've, I've been here before. And the Bible is intentionally written like this, especially our Old Testament. What the Lord does is he's, as he's unfolding his stories, he's repeating these actions and words and scenes, giving us these, these similar descriptions over and over again. And the Lord does this repeating himself so that we might scratch our heads and then ask all sorts of questions. And he does this so that we would scratch our heads and ask all of these questions, looking at these scenes, feeling the eerie similarity so that as we study and as we look and as we ponder, we might see with deeper insight what the Lord is doing. And in Joshua chapter 2, we get this eerie familiarity. It's almost like deja vu. Let me explain. So in our text, Joshua does what? He, he sends out spies into the land, and he sends out spies into the land because he wants them to bring information back to him about the land. And so verse 1, we get this. And, the, and Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And, and so we ask, well, what does this remind me of? I think I've seen this. I think I've heard this before. Well, we're reminded of Numbers chapter 13, Numbers chapter 
14. And in those chapters, Moses sends out spies into the land so that they might go into the land and take account of it and bring a report back to him. So there's this familiarity. And there's more here in the text as well. In verse 1, we get this geographical location, this description. Israel is located at a specific place. They're located at Shittim. And that isn't a variation on a bad word. It is instead a word that, that describes something like an acacia grove. And so apparently these trees were so plentiful and numerous in this place, this grove was so well-renowned that it just had this name, Shittim. And then in our text, in chapter 2, we not only get this geographical location, but we hear about a woman whose name's Rahab, who is a prostitute. And what does this remind us of? Well, this one is harder, it's more difficult but it should remind us of some other story in the Bible. It should remind us of Numbers chapter 25. The only time Shittim is mentioned before Joshua chapter 2 in our Bibles is in Numbers chapter 25. And in Numbers chapter 25, we get this terrible scene where we find this mass instance of mass whoredom. And so Numbers chapter 25 verses 1 through 2 says it like this, and I'll just let Scripture describe it for you. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the peoples to the, to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So here we are. We're in Joshua chapter 2, and we need to take stock of what's going on here. So what do we see happening in Joshua chapter 2? Well, we see spies going into the land, and then we get this geographical description of where they're at. They're at Shittim, and then we hear of a prostitute. And as we take account of all of this, this isn't the sort of deja vu we want to have. All the clues prepare us in this text for disaster. We're reminded as we look at these spies, as they go out in the land, we're reminded of the the faithlessness and cowardice of Israel from Numbers 13 and 14. We remember that story and the consequences of, of Israel's sin and not taking the land. We're reminded of all the graves that are scattered in the wilderness as a, as a whole generation is lost because of their sin. And then we get the location of Shittim and this mention of Rahab the prostitute. And that reminds us back to Numbers chapter 25 where, where Israel commits this adultery, spiritual adultery and physical adultery in the land of Moab. And then we get these graphic images stuck in our minds as we're considering this whole scene because after after this wicked sin, what happens? Israel's leaders are taken, these ones who are guilty of sin, and they're, they're impaled on spikes and they're set in the sun. And then we're reminded of Phineas the priest and he sees a man of Israel taking a wicked woman into his tent. And Phineas grabs a spear and he runs and he he drives his, his spear right through both of them, right in the belly. And as we take up the story of Joshua chapter 2, we get this feeling in our gut that something bad, something really bad is about to happen here. We're just piecing together the clues. But here's the thing about Joshua chapter 2. 
Nothing like Numbers 13, nothing like Numbers 14 happens. No one turns away from the Lord. No one melts in fear. No one is faithless. No one is cowardly. Even more, nothing like Numbers chapter 25 happens either. No one commits adultery, either spiritual or physical. No one bows down to an idol or takes a foreign woman and commits a gross sin with her. There are no stakes or spears or gruesome deaths. Brother, what do we find in chapter 2? Well, we find encouragement in chapter 2. At the end of the chapter, we find Israel strengthened and encouraged and built up in the faith. We get verse 24. It says, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. And even more, we find the the true and pure worship of God in chapter 2. We, we come expecting trouble, but what we find is, is worship. We get verse 11 from the, from the lips of Rahab. We hear, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And as we come to Joshua chapter 2, all of our expectations are turned on their head. We hear these details, and as careful readers, we're expecting something, something bad, but we don't find any of it. And the Lord is doing this, Why? so that we might scratch our heads and ask questions. And specifically ask this question. Why did this story turn out differently? Why did this story turn out differently? And that answer is not a hard answer to give. This story turns out differently because God's grace revealed to Rahab. And so we need to look at Rahab, and Rahab deserves a very close look. So what can we say about this woman. Well, as we look at the text, we know a few things about her. We know her name, and that might not seem important to you, but it is significantly important because think about it. We've read two chapters of the story, and this is the second proper name we've received. We only know two characters by name. We know Joshua by name, and now we know this woman, Rahab by name. We also know more about this woman. We know where she lived. She lived in Jericho in one of the city walls of this city, which is going to be important detail later on for how the story is going to unfold. We know that she had a family. She had a father and mother and brother and sisters. And we know what she did for a living. She was a prostitute. And as we take all of that in, as we're receiving these details from Joshua chapter 2, that is not a good pedigree. She is a Canaanite. And what does that mean? It means that she is to be under the ban. She is to be destroyed along with all the other peoples. Even worse, she's a prostitute. And we have read Israel's laws. Prostitution is is not an okay thing for the people of God, and especially in this holy land. But here's the surprising thing we see in this chapter. It is this woman, the woman that we would least expect that God uses to turn the story of Israel around. God uses this woman to encourage Israel to take the land. God uses this woman to give us one of the clearest personal theological statements in the whole of the Bible. Through this woman, God is revealing himself, who he is, and what he is like. And there's one more thing we have to note about Rahab, this woman. Really, it's the most important thing that Rahab has to offer us. And it's the thing that chapter 2 highlights and underscores and puts in bold print for us. It is Rahab's faith. She's a believer in the God of Israel. 
And so important is this one thing about Rahab, that she's, she's a, a believer in the God of Israel, that when the, when the apostles read this story hundreds of years later, and as they, they ministered to the congregations in front of them, and they, they wrote to them encouraging them, they went back and they used Rahab to encourage God's people. For example, the author of Hebrews is encouraging God's people to keep the faith, and he says this, Hebrews 11.31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And, and then there's James in James chapter 2, verse 25. James is, is teaching us that, that faith results in works. It's a real living faith. And so he, he lifts up Rahab as an example. He says, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And so if we want to understand this story, if we want to understand what God is doing with Israel, we have to study the faith of this woman. And we're going to do that by considering her faith from four different perspectives. What Rahab knows, what Rahab confesses, what Rahab pleads, and then what Rahab does. So we can start with this, considering her faith, first perspective, what Rahab knows. And as we look over chapter 2, it's clear that Rahab knows quite a bit. And really, it's stunning to listen to this woman speak. She likely wasn't politically connected. She likely wasn't op- upwardly mobile. She, she likely wasn't included in the polite society of Jericho. Likely, she was very poor. Likely, she was on the very bottom of the social ladder in Jericho. But here's this thing about this woman. She knows She knows what what God has done, what the God of Israel has done for his people. Even more, she knows what God is going to do. She knows the purposes and plans of the Lord. Just look at the text with me. Rahab knows about Egypt and what happened there. Verse 10, she says, We have heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea before you when you went out of Egypt. And she knows about Israel's victories on the other side of the Jordan, these great victories that God gave Israel through Moses. She says, verse 10 again, And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And this woman, she knows about the fear of the Lord. Verse 9, she says, The fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. And this should take us aback. She knows what God is doing, and she knows the plan of the Lord. And it makes us scratch our heads. How does she know what the Lord is going to do? But verse 9, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know this. And here, as we look at Rahab and what she knows, we learn something important about faith. Genuine faith is founded upon knowledge. Genuine faith is founded upon knowledge. Just think about Rahab. She wasn't guessing about the Lord, nor was she making things up as she went along about the Lord. Rather, she had in her brain, stored in her memory banks, were the deeds and acts of the Lord, and she's just recounting them to us. She knows what God is going to do. She knows the purposes and plans of the Lord, and she's recounting them to us. Her faith is founded upon credible, or we could say believable truths. There is a foundation to her faith, and that that foundation is the knowledge of God. And what we see in Rahab is the foundation for all true faith that is genuine. Faith is always founded upon knowledge, who God is, what God is like, what God has done, what God has revealed, what God has said he will do. 
And so truth, the knowledge of the truth, is always the basis of faith. And so we're learning about faith and as we, as we see what Rahab knows, and that's the first perspective. We can move on and we, we can look at the second perspective, what, what Rahab confesses. And so Rahab knows these things about the Lord, what he has done in Egypt and to Sihon and Og. She knows about the purposes of the Lord and what she knows about the Lord then, then does something. It pushes her to make a confession. And so she says this in verse 11, making her confession. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Sometimes we just read our Bible so fast that the glory of it is missed upon us, but we can't miss it. Remember who's speaking here. Who is this? This is Rahab, and who is she? She's a Canaanite, and what does that mean? Just think about her life. She'd have grown up in this pagan context, and and her whole upbringing would have been worshiping false gods and false idols. Her, Her whole life would have been consumed with it. It's all the instruction she would have received. Even more, what was she? She was a prostitute. And in the ancient world, what was prostitution? It was was most likely, as you see, as you read these texts, it's it's often connected with the worship of false gods. In the ancient liturgy, there was often sex. And so her her own work is likely connected with the worship of these false gods. And here is Rahab, this, this Canaanite, and just ponder her words. She says this, confessing, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What is Rahab doing? She's, she's with her words. It's like she's taking her arms and she's wrapping them all around created reality. You've got the earth down, down here and you've got the heavens above and wherever you go in these realms, she's preaching to us. There is the Lord and he is the only God. And according to, to Rahab, there is only one God. There is no competition in, in, in the heavens above or in the earth beneath. There is the Lord and that's it. For the Lord is both the master and ruler of heaven and earth. What a glorious statement from this woman. And as we listen to Rahab, it's almost like she was reading and studying and meditating on the first two commandments given to Israel at Sinai. Do you remember the first two commandments? Well, the first commandment teaches this, you shall have no other gods before me. And then there's the second commandment and it adds, it says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. It's like she's meditating on these, these principal articles of Israel's faith. It's like as she's learning about this great God who's doing these great things, this knowledge is settling in upon her soul. It's almost like she was listening to the preaching of Moses The book of Deuteronomy is like one long sermon from Moses as he preaches to Israel. And it's like in this confession in verse 11, she's like verbatim regurgitating Moses' preaching. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 39 says this. Just connect it with verse 11 because it's almost word for word. Moses preaches to Israel saying, Know therefore today and lay it to heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. It's like somehow Rahab was listening to Moses. And so what is Rahab doing in verse 11? Well, she is speaking the truth about God. And not just that, she is speaking the truth about God. But with these words, as she confesses the truth about God, she is binding herself to the God of Israel. These words are not just words of mere 
recitation like she memorized them and she's mindlessly saying them. Verse 11 is a confession of, of loyalty. I think that's the way we should read it. She is binding herself with allegiance to this one true God. As we think about it, this is what true faith always does. Every single time, true faith confesses loyalty to the one true God and his son. And as the Apostle Paul teaches us about faith, he, he brings this fundamental component to us. We're reminded of Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, while, while Paul is preaching to us about faith, he says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and saved and is saved. What's Paul saying? Essential to faith is giving allegiance to the Lord, binding yourself to him. And that's what Rahab does. She gives her allegiance to the God of Israel. That's what Rahab confesses. We can move on. We can add a third perspective, what Rahab pleads. And so we've received facts from Rahab. She's told us about what God has done beyond the Jordan and, and down into Egypt. She has given us good theology. We've listened to verse 11 and she's spoken the truth to us about God, that he is the only God. And that's good. But if we keep reading the text, if we keep our noses down in our Bibles, we will find that Rahab's words grow warm, really warm. In fact, if we keep listening to this woman, we will find that there is desperation in her voice and we can start to hear it as she speaks. Look down at verses 12 and 13. Rahab speaks and she says this. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. What is Rahab doing here? Well, she, she's pleading with these men. And she's not just pleading with these men. I think she's ultimately pleading with the Lord here. And what is she pleading for? She is pleading for salvation. She knows that judgment is coming upon the land of Canaan and all who dwell therein. She's pleading for salvation, that she might escape this coming judgment of the Lord. She's pleading for, for kindness. She has shown kindness, steadfast love to these spies, and she is pleading that steadfast love might meet her that she might experience the grace of God. And again, this is astonishing, and it should astonish us. Consider Rahab's situation. Consider what was going on in the land of Canaan. We can say this, no gospel was ever preached in her ears. No offer of mercy was ever published in the city of Jericho. No terms of peace were ever proclaimed throughout the land of Canaan. In fact, the opposite was true. And we, we hear it in the text. Rumors of doom and gloom were spreading like wildfire throughout the whole land of Canaan. And people, as a result, are melting in fear. But this woman does something so interesting. She knows that there's only one true God. She knows what the Lord is doing. He's giving this land to, to his people. He is judging the inhabitants of the land. And what does this woman do? She ventures out upon this God in hope that there might be a way of escape in him for her and for all her family. This is astounding. She ventures out in hope though the, the gospel hasn't been preached or she knows there's only one true God. She, she ventures out in hope 
that this girl will show her steadfast love and mercy, though she does not deserve any, not an ounce or drop of steadfast love and mercy. And again here, we're learning about faith. What does genuine faith do? Well, genuine faith pleads. It pleads. Genuine faith is filled and full of desperation. And in the age of the gospel, that's the age we live in. We do not have to venture out into the blackness of judgment to make our plea like Rahab had to do. Our situation is so different than Rahab's. We have the precious promises of the gospel proclaimed in our ears again and again. We know the truth that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and he will save all who come to him, who come to him by faith. In fact, we are beckoned and called again and again to come to Jesus. Jesus himself, even this morning, is speaking to you, calling you to himself. He is saying, you remember these words from from Matthew chapter 11? Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me and I will give you rest. And so we learn here with Rahab, we must plead. That's what true faith looks like. There is need in faith. There is longing and desperation for the Lord and what the Lord only can provide, and that is salvation. And this brings us to the last perspective we must consider, what Rahab does. Rahab's faith is a busy faith. So in chapter two, we find a lot of words. Rahab takes center stage and she is speaking and we've been paying attention to all of her words and we've been instructed about faith from her listening to her plea, listening to her confession, listening to her knowledge of the Lord. But we find not just words in chapter two, we find action, lots of action. Rahab's faith, as we see in chapter two, is a real faith. We could say a justified faith. It is a a faith that is proven through her actions and deeds. We can just take a look at what Rahab does in chapter two. So in verse one, the two spies, they come to Rahab's house and they lodge there. And what does Rahab do? Well, in faith, because of faith, she welcomes these spies. Verse three, the king of Jericho demands that these these men be taken from Rahab. So in faith, what does she do? She hides these men on the top of her house. The messengers then come and and question her from the king. And what does she do? In faith, she, she dupes these gullible messengers and their wicked Canaanite king. Then the gate of the city is closed. There's no way out or in. And as readers, we're, we're left trying to figure out how are these men going to live? And in faith, what does she do? She, she lets them down out the window and gives them a way of escape. We know that destruction is coming to Jericho and so did Rahab. Everyone is going to be destroyed, both man and beast. Every living thing will be destroyed and put to the ban. But in faith, what does Rahab do? She is given this sure sign And she ties that scarlet cord to her window in faith, trusting that the Lord will bring her salvation. Even more in faith, what does she do? She gathers her family, her father and mother, her brother and sisters and their families into this promise that they too might be saved. What do we see in Rahab? We see action. Because genuine faith cannot remain passive. It cannot remain hidden along, hidden away for very long. For faith always drives a man. It's always driving a woman to work. And in Rahab, we see this this work of faith. She sets herself to work for the God of Israel. It's so interesting. The Lord's cause is now her cause. And she's treating the Lord's people as her own people. She's risking her life for these two spies and venturing all on this. 
we see. Rahab's faith is put on display throughout her actions, and true faith is a, a faith that works. It's a faith that works. So what our text does in chapter two is that it lifts up the faith of Rahab before us. And we see faith in detail here. We see in Rahab what faith knows. Faith knows God and what God has done and who God is. And, and then faith does not just stay with knowledge, it moves to confession. Faith binds itself to the one true God as it speaks the truth about God. And then faith pleads because faith is a, a needy reality needing the God of Israel. And then faith finally works, producing all sorts of observable actions as faith takes action for the God of Israel. And the Lord is so kind to us here in chapter 2. What is he doing? Well, at the beginning of this story, he's setting Rahab up for us as a paradigm of faith. He's lifting Rahab up as an example of faith, and he's doing this so that we might come to the story and we might read it carefully and consider ourselves in light of her faith. And it would be wise, it would be good if you sat this morning and considered Rahab's faith and then considered your own soul in light of it. It'd be profitable if you took questions and you, you launched them at your own soul, asking questions like these. Do I know about the works of the Lord? Do I know what God has done? Even more, do I know who this God is? We can keep asking questions. Have I confessed this God's sovereignty over all things? Have I, have I gone to this Lord, spoken the truth about him, and, and bound myself with an oath to this God? Have I given my allegiance to him and bent my, my knee to him that I might serve him and, and him alone? We can ask, have I pled the promises of the gospel? Is that how I live my life? When I'm praying, what am I offering up to my Father? Do I plead his promises? We can ask, is there any fruit in my life? We see fruit in, in Rahab's life. She's taking action for the Lord. She's working for the Lord. The Lord's people, she's treating as her own. And we can ask ourselves, have I taken any discernible action for the Lord and for his people and for his cause? Am I really in the faith? Do I really belong to the God of Israel? Those are good questions we must ask. And with these questions, I don't think we've exhausted the importance of Rahab and her faith for us. And what I want to do is I want to take a step back now. And let me remind you of the big picture of what's happening in the book of Joshua. So we're in chapter 2, and in chapter 2, Israel is on the edge of Canaan. They have not yet crossed the Jordan. And when they cross the Jordan and they enter into the land, what are they going to do in the land? Well, we know that they are God's instrument of judgment, bringing God's just judgment upon the inhabitants of the land. You can think about it like this in like a, a judicial setting. We can think of the Lord as a just judge, and he has passed his sentence upon the guilty criminal. The guilty criminal is the people of Canaan, or the people of Canaan. And so the Lord has passed his sentence, and then there is the executioner, and now the executioner is standing ready to carry out the verdict. Texts like Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 2 should come to mind when we're thinking about this. Here Moses preaches to Israel and he says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, 
And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and you shall sow no mercy to them. What is Moses saying? You must wipe them out because you are God's instrument of judgment upon these people. So that's the big picture. Then we come to Joshua chapter two and what happens? Before Israel enters the land, before the Lord carries out his sentence upon the peoples of the land through his own people, a Canaanite woman and her family escape the judgment of the Lord. You see it. Rahab escapes the judgment of the Lord. And not just that, in later chapters, as we read the story forward, she gets more than that. She gets a piece of the land of Israel. She gets an inheritance among God's people. Even more, she's engrafted into the tribe of Judah. And she will eventually become the mother of the kings of Israel. King David will come through her line, and then ultimately our Lord Jesus Christ will come through her line. And so what are we supposed to make of this? Well, I think the Lord wants us to see this. Even though judgment has been passed on the land, even though the executioner is standing at the door, there is yet a way of escape. We see it in Rahab's life. She trusts the God of Israel, and she is saved. And this we need to keep in mind as we work through the book of Joshua. Because we're going to see a lot of destruction. Jericho is going to be destroyed. Ai is going to be destroyed. The five kings of the Amorites are going to be destroyed. There's going to be lots of other kings who get destroyed by Joshua. And we have to remember this. There is a way of escape. We see it in Rahab's life. She trusted the Lord and she was saved. But what we'll see in these stories is that these people are so stubborn made so stubborn by their sin that they refuse the Lord in his ways and they will not, they will not submit to him. They will not do what Rahab did and believe him. And this is not only important for understanding the book of Joshua, but it, it helps us make sense of our present world because we are in a similar sort of situation as the book of Joshua. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that a day of judgment has been fixed for the entirety of the world. The Lord has set a day when he will bring his righteous judgments to bear upon every individual who has ever lived. Past, present, future. Man, woman, child. And the Lord tells us that this day could come at any time. I'm reminded of James chapter 5, verse 9, and James writes to his readers and he says, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Something to think about. But here, Joshua chapter 2 helps us because Joshua chapter 2 preaches us good news. There is a way of escape. And though this way of escape wasn't published openly in the days of Rahab, Rahab found it nonetheless. She ventured upon the Lord. She trusted in the Lord. But now this way is freely and openly proclaimed to all of us. The news is pronounced clearly. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and you are saved by simple faith in his name. What Joshua chapter 2 is proclaiming to us in our own day is that there is a way of escape before judgment comes. And that way of escape is this. It is trusting in the God of Israel and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Joshua chapter 2 is all about the gospel. So how do we end this sermon? We've covered a lot of ground. We've thought about a lot of things, but I think it's best to end with this by going back to the text and going back to the last verse in the text. Just completing the story. So Joshua sends off these spies to go scout out the land and they're kind of interesting spies because it doesn't seem like they actually scouted out much of the land. They, they go to Jericho and then they end up getting stuck in Jericho. And once they get out of Jericho, they hide in the hills and then they hightail it back to Joshua. 
But what's interesting is what happens after these men meet Rahab and speak with her. What happens to these men? Well, they're encouraged and they're refreshed. And then they go back to Israel after meeting Rahab and speaking with Rahab, and they encourage and refresh all of Israel. Listen to verse 24. This is the result of Rahab's faith. The spies say to Joshua, surely this was pronounced to all the people of God, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Refreshment, encouragement. And as we think about Joshua chapter 2, for us, the people of God who belong to Jesus, what should this story do? It should encourage and refresh our hearts. Why? Well, just let me ask you, doesn't the story of Rahab and her faith bring us back to the simple truth of the gospel that we love so much? What do we love? We, we love the gospel of Jesus. Even more, we, we love the simple truth of, of simply trusting in Jesus' name for salvation. It's what we love as Christians. It is our chief delight, the gospel of Jesus. Just work that through with me. What do we love? We love knowing the deeds and words of Jesus. That essential component of faith of knowing God, it is such a delight to us as believers. We, we love knowing all that Jesus has done. We go day by day, day by day, thinking about our Jesus and all that he is for us. Not only do we love knowing the deeds of Jesus, we love confessing the truth about Jesus. We love this part of faith. We love speaking the truth about our Lord. We love to say, Jesus is Lord. We're made glad by saying that to each other. It's our worship. And not only is it our worship, it is our testimony to the world, a needed testimony. We proclaim to one and all, Jesus is Lord. And we love to plead Jesus' promises. Jesus has given us so many promises in the Bible. And we love this part of faith where we, where we take Jesus' words and full of need, we plead. When we sin, when we do something foolish and stupid and wrong, what do we love to do? We love to grab hold of Jesus' promises and we love to bring them to our Father. When we're discouraged and downtrodden, what do we love to do? We love to hold on to Jesus' promises and plead them again and again and again. Jesus, you said, come to me. Jesus, you said that you will give me rest that you would do kindness to my soul. So, so I'm pleading your words, do kindness to my soul. And even more, we love to work and sweat and labor for our Jesus. Faith works for Jesus, and we love this part of faith. It is our delight to work for King Jesus. His commands, they aren't burdensome to us. They are food and drink. His will, his will makes us happy. And so we rejoice in doing all the work that Jesus has made for us. And this is what Joshua chapter 2 reminds us of, what, what the story of Rahab reminds us of. It brings us back to the simple gospel and simple faith in Jesus, and it should encourage and refresh our hearts. For this story is all about Jesus and trusting him. So let's, let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for this chapter. We pray that this chapter would do a great work in our hearts, that we would be stirred up to love Jesus. We're encouraged by Rahab's testimony. We're encouraged by the grace we can see in her life. You are such a good and kind God. So Father, would you build us up and encourage us with her words, knowing that you are the true God and knowing that Jesus is the only way. 
Build us up now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.